Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of worship. Even the reminder of the song we have just sung, anticipating the day of resurrection as we celebrate it a month from now. A reminder that Christ indeed is alive. The sting of death is removed. The power of the grave is vanquished. We're people who are hopeful, confident, expectant. What a Savior we have. Thank you, our Father, that He also has died and been resurrected to liberate us from the power of sin. Not that we live perfectly, but that we no longer live under bondage. We're no longer enslaved. We're no longer captive. We can say no to sin and yes to righteousness and we can please you. And we can walk in obedience to you. That walk of obedience is what we need. The walk of obedience is where joy is found. The putting off of sin and the putting on of righteousness not only honors you, but it gives life to our souls, gives delight to our hearts, causes our souls to sing because we know I'm liberated, I'm changed. We need that. Father, we need that from this word this morning. We need it in general at all times. But this morning, if we will be honest before you, our hearts bow up to this text. We know that your text is truth. That there is not a single word, a single mark in this book that is incorrect and inaccurate. It all is aligned with your absolute unerring truth. But our fleshly hearts don't like what we read today. And so would you be so kind as to work into our hearts, to soften us, to prepare us, that we might be not just submissive, but in an attitude and an expectation of submission so that we will want the change that you would work in us through this passage today. And that as that change is being worked in us over the next 30 or 40 minutes, that our hearts would be fully prepared for the taking of communion at the end of this service. That we would be able to commune and be in fellowship with one another and far more than that, that we would be able to commune and be in fellowship with you because we are following what this word says. Would you change us? Would you instruct us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you are a baseball fan, and I pray by the grace of God you are, you know this face. He is one of the most successful managers in all of baseball history. 
And even if you don't know the face, and who could forget a face like that? You, you may have heard of the name, Casey Stengel. Casey had an ability to say the right thing in the wrong way. And he always made his listeners chuckle at his malaprops. I don't know when he said this, but his comment on politics is timeless. I stayed up last night and watched the Republican convention all night long. I watched all of them talk and listened to them and seen them. And I'm not interested in politics. If you watch them and listen to them, you understand why. Stengel was reflecting an idea that living in this world is hard. Living under government, living under our government is hard. Because at times the government is somewhere between inept and corrupt. And it's hard to follow leaders in those conditions. We see ungodly laws and unrighteous living, and it not only saddens us, but we see even the encouragement of injustice. Not only a moving away from righteousness, but a flagrant delight in moving away from unrighteousness that at times seems to be headed by and led by the government And that grieves us. We see those who should be upholding moral truth and goodness, perverting it. And we are anticipating the end of the culture. We see government acting in ways that Paul talked about the way ungodly people would at the end of the age. Chapter 1, verse 32 Although they know the ordinance of God, that is, they know the truth of God because it's written on their hearts. They have a moral conscience that informs them of what the truth is. Though they know the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's virtually... Not a week that goes by that you can't say, this is what our government in many instances seems to be doing. They're not only practicing unrighteousness, but they're giving hearty approval. They're giving consent. They're giving leadership to this. And as we give, get back to Romans chapter 13, Paul is exceedingly clear about how we should think about that kind of government and how we should relate to that kind of government. The last couple of weeks, last couple of Sundays that we've been in this text, we have been thinking about the role of government and its responsibilities to you and to me. And this morning we want to take this same passage and look at it in another direction, for Paul does both of these things and think about our responsibility to the government. What's our role? How do we relate to? How do we function with the government that God has given us? I can't say it any more simply than this. Every believer should always honor his government. Every believer should always honor his government. Or even more precisely, because God has ordained every government, every believer should always honor his government. How do we honor the government? In these verses, Paul is going to give us three responses for us to the government. 
three responses to the government. If you notice your outline, you have one response. That's because I couldn't make it today through everything. So we're going to look at the first one. And then next week, we'll look at the remaining two. Every believer should always honor his government. I told you last week, some of you might not be thrilled with the sermon today or next week. I get it. My heart battles these kinds of things too. Um, Somebody asked me yesterday, I won't throw him under the bus and tell, tell you who he was, but somebody asked me yesterday, so are you getting to civil disobedience tomorrow? I said, no, that's next week. He said, rats, I'm always looking for the loophole. On the way to church this morning, I told the, told the story to Regina on the way home last night. And uh, on the way to church this morning, we hit an intersection and the light was yellow. And my visor was down. So the last thing I saw was yellow. And that is the truth. The last thing I saw was yellow. But it was probably red as I was going most of the way through the intersection. And Regine just looked at me and said, Terry, looking for the loophole? (laughs) Yeah. This stuff is hard, isn't it? Some of you who are older like me, and some of you who are older than me, look back at other days in our culture and say, it's never been like this. I don't think it's ever been harder in our country to respect our government than right now. Is that true for you? It is for me. These things go contrary. What what Paul is going to call us to do today goes contrary to the flesh. It goes contrary to our perception of what is right and true and good and honorable. And what Paul is going to say is just really hard to do. It's against the flesh. And while the flesh must die, the flesh doesn't want to die does it? At least mine doesn't. We are naturally resistant to some of these things. But brothers and sisters, these truths are good. And by that, I mean they are right. They are righteous. They're revealed from God. And they are revealed from God for us, for our good. So they are not only inherently good in righteousness, but they are good for us. Beneficial to us. You know this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Most scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, training in righteousness. You got it, didn't you? All scripture. When we teach biblical counseling and discipleship, this is where we start. This is the foundation. All scripture. Every word of it. Every mark in it. Every breathing mark, every accent, every part of every letter, all of it is right and true. And it is profitable to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. And why does God give it to us that way? So that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. It's good for us, brothers. 
I know it's hard. It's hard for me too. I get it. But the question is not, do I agree with this? But am I willing to follow my Savior in this? So now you're really wondering, what is he going to say with that kind of introduction? Here's the one thing I want us to consider today. Submit to the government. We're going to see this in verse 1. We're going to see it in verse 2. We're going to see it in verse 5. Now let's just start with a few principles about this truth. One is that submission is for all people. Verse 1 Every person, I've, I've focused on the reality that this is for believers, right? So all believers ought to submit to every government at all times. But it's not just believers. He says every person, believer or not believer, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. As we think about that statement, submission is for all people. Let's ask the question and answer the question, what is submission? What is submission? The word submission, also translated to be in subjection to another, it's a familiar word. It's, it's the word that Paul uses about believers in the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. It's, it's the verb that is implied in verse 22 of Ephesians 5 for wives as they relate to their husbands to place themselves under. It's the word that we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2 about slaves and masters. It's the word that Paul uses in Titus chapter 2 verse 9, thinking about slaves and their relationship to masters. And the idea of this word is, whenever and wherever a believer has someone in authority over him, he needs to willingly place himself underneath that authority and follow that authority. It's not just that he has to obey. It is not just that he has to follow. That is certainly there. But it also is that he does so willingly and voluntarily. He chooses to submit. Now, there are at times reasons for submission that come from external forces. So at times, the government compels obedience. There is no way out. Now, typically, that's not something that we experience in the American culture, but there are other cultures and other places that is the reality. But that's not the kind of submission that Paul is talking about here. He is talking about something far more than a compelled compliance He's talking about a submission that comes voluntarily and willfully and joyfully. It's our delight to submit. So submission is really not just what we do. It is actually an attitude of heart that results in joyful and God-honoring obedience. Now, we, we see this in multiple places, right? We have children. Some of you have children. Some of you have grandchildren. Some of you remember the days when you have children. Those days are starting to fade as I think about, you know, the little, little ones. But I remember days when children were little. I'm sure I never did this when I was little, but that when our children were little, where sometimes um, obedience was hard for them. And you just knew I can I can. I can physically force them 
to do what I'm asking them to do. But I know their poor little depraved heart is not in compliance. And they're not really submitting, are they, when they're like that? We see the kind of submission that Paul is exhorting us to here, a joyful and willing submission when he talks about how a wife relates to her husband, it's not just that a wife follows her husband, but she does it because it's her joy. She delights to follow him because she delights to follow Christ. In like manner, the church is submissive to Christ. Young people are submissive to their elders, church members to their leadership, soldiers to their superiors, slaves to their masters, the Son of God to His Father joyfully submitted to the will that the Father had for Him. And brothers and sisters, citizens, submit to the government. That's, that's our characteristic. That's what we do. Submission, living under the authority of others, is normal for every person everywhere And that's the fundamental, that's the baseline for how we operate in relation to the government. So let's just summarize it. The one who willingly, excuse me, the one who submits willingly gives up his rights in order to serve another. So in Romans 13, when it says every person is to be in subjection to the government, it means that whatever the government has mandated... The believer is obligated by God to joyfully submit to that law. He is to place himself under the law and under the authority and under the leader behind that law. Are there exceptions? Yes. But those are few and far between in all honesty. And I don't want to take the time to get to that today. We'll we'll talk about that next week. I want, to, I want to set the baseline. I'm not worried that, that our people and believers won't disobey the government when it comes time to disobey. Our hearts are inclined to disobey. I want to set the baseline of submission. That our default is not disobedience, but obedience and submission. Who should submit? Again, Paul makes this really clear. Every person. In fact, the way he says it is interesting. He doesn't say every person. He says literally every soul. This is not optional for anyone. No matter where anyone lives, no matter when anyone lives, he is to place himself under the authority of the government and follow it. (laughs) That's tough. Some have suggested... That because it is so tough, that Paul's being ironic. That what he is saying is so absurd that he must have meant the exact opposite of it. He doesn't mean we're to be submissive, but that we are to be subversive. That sounds great to our American ears. Except that goes completely against the consistent teaching of Scripture. Submission to the government is what was taught in the Old Testament to Israel. Just one example, Jeremiah 29, after Israel was sent into captivity in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah wrote to those who uh, were in captivity saying this, Jeremiah 29, 7, 
Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. <laughs> pray for pray for the blessing of Babylon that took you into captivity. Is the paraphrase of that. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will have welfare. This is what Jesus taught. We'll look at this next week. Matthew chapter 22, 15 to 22. About taxes. And the taxes rightly go to the government. And we are obligated to follow and to live under the authority of that government. And do what that government says even when it is unrighteous. And remember that Christ uttered those words while he was living underneath subjection of the Roman government. An authority that was far more oppressive and far more corrupt than our own. And yet he never uttered a single word about reclaiming the culture or overthrowing the government. Now that's what everybody was expecting him to do, even his own disciples. So Jesus goes to the cross. They're they're looking all the time. Jesus now, Jesus now, Jesus is is now the time when when you're going to come and establish your messianic reign. And Jesus keeps talking about the cross and dying. Peter gets it right and he says, never, Lord. I say that ironically. So Jesus goes to the cross and he's resurrected. And now for 40 days, he's walking around Israel and he's teaching his disciples. And after 40 days, he meets them again. And gathering them together, Acts chapter 1, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. That's the promise of the Spirit. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6, listen. So when they came together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is this the time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus... Now do we get to get rid of Rome? Now are you overthrowing the government? Nary a word of affirmation. Now there is coming a time when he'll do it. So he said, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed for his own authority or by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Spirit of God has come upon you. In other words, you just get busy about the task using the Spirit of God That has been granted to you to carry the gospel. And you let me take care of when the end of the age will come. And I will set up my kingdom. They were expecting it. And Jesus said not a thing about it. This is exactly what Peter wrote in his first letter to the church that was scattered, persecuted. That's what we read earlier. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is what Paul wrote. Titus chapter 3, as if it's not harsh enough, difficult enough, in Romans 13, listen to what he says in Titus 3, 1 and 2, remind them to be subject to rulers, that's, excuse me, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, that word authorities is the same word, or it's the The root of the same word that's used in Romans 13. The word subjection is the same word that's used in Romans 13. So it's a very parallel idea. But listen to how he expands it. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. To be ready for every good deed. To malign no one. 
So not only are we to be in subjection, but we've got to watch what we say about those who are in authority over us to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And just by way of reminder, this is written during the time of Nero, who after he burned Rome, blamed the Christians and had them crucified, he burned them alive on torches. He took their skins and put them on animals so that they'd be torn apart by dogs. Exceedingly cruel. When Jerusalem was overrun by Rome in A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed and the estimate is that 1.1 million people were killed. It is in that, it is in that government, underneath that government, that Paul says, be gentle. Malign no one. Titus' situation in Crete was no different. The historian Polybius said that it was, quote, almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. And in that circumstance, Paul says, subject yourself, obey Be gentle. Don't malign anyone. In fact, what's interesting in Titus 3, the word obedience, obey, is a present tense, which means that's the pattern. That's the way we habitually operate. In every circumstance where we have an opportunity, we obey. You know what's interesting to me? We, and I include me, We are really quick to look for reasons for civil disobedience when the entire emphasis of Scripture is to look for opportunities for civil obedience. We're so so quick to look for the exception and the Lord would have us to look for the norm. How should you generally operate? How should you consistently operate? What should the pattern of your life be? So let me summarize this. If a law has been made and it applies to me, I must obey. If there is an authority over me, I must submit joyfully. And that's hard for us because we are trained culturally and by the flesh to distrust and rebel. One of our girls was really young. I don't remember the exact age, two or three years old. We'd gone to visit my parents. We were at a restaurant. I don't remember what the restaurant is, but I can see that room just as vividly today as it was 25 years ago. And um, the girl in question, I'll remain, leave the guilty party unnamed, um, I don't remember what happened, but it was one of those situations where I need to pull her out, right? And so I took her out, and we we talked. Literally, that's all we did, we talked. But she understood what needed to be done to correct things. Brought her back to the table and asked her to make a confession at the table. I'd prepared her for it. And so she came back to the table to make the confession 
It seemed to be somewhat inadequate in my mind. And I said, honey, you need to ask it with a happy heart. I didn't see my mother's expression at the time, but I'm sure she rolled her eyes. And she said, Terry, isn't it enough that she's obeying? I didn't tell her no, but the answer is no. It's not. Just rote obedience is never enough. It has to come from a heart that says, I want to obey. It's my joy to obey. It's my delight to obey. And that's true as we relate to the government as well. Disobedience and rebellion may be commendable attributes in the culture, but they are condemnable attributes for the believer. One last question here. To whom should one submit? Notice what our text says. Every person is to be in subject to in subjection to the governing authorities. Governing authorities refers to anyone who has an ability, a right, a permission to exercise power over others. His commands must be obeyed. When that word is used about governmental leaders as here, there is never any promise that the leaders will be righteous. In fact, because they are men, we understand that they are fallible. They will sin. And if they are unbelievers, they may sin with great aptitude. And still, citizens must submit. This term about authorities is nonspecific and it is broad. It includes anyone who has any kind of authority. And so our, in our context, it, it's anyone from the president to the Senate to the House to state officials to city and county leaders, policemen, deputies, constables, judges, from the Supreme Court down to the justice of the peace to the traffic court. It includes building inspectors, DMV employees, and voting officials. If they have authority, we submit. Even if the individual is flawed, we submit. If he has a position that requires our submission, we submit as an expression of joyful obedience to God. So let me just play it out in case I haven't made myself clear yet. I think I have been. I'm not always clear, but I think I have been so far. January 6th was an abomination. Doesn't matter which political side of the spectrum you're on. It was abject rebellion and lack of submission and dishonoring to Christ. And those who engaged in that on that day will either pay for that sin for eternity in hell or if they're believers, brothers and sisters, it was for that that Christ died. He took a nail at the cross for that overt rebellion against government. A Christian cannot be an anarchist. 
says one writer, submissiveness has always portrayed the spirit of Christ in his people. Rebellion has never produced any response from God other than judgment. That's really well said. Our default response to government should always be submission and obedience. And most of us struggle with this. And I put myself in that category. I do too. Submission, frankly, is just not an American value. But it is a biblical value. And it is a demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit working in us. You know, as, as believing Americans, we have rebellion and anarchy in two ways. We have rebellion and anarchy in the flesh. And we have rebellion and anarchy in our cultural heritage. We are trained as Americans to rebel and push against authority. So, as believers, our resistance to submission comes both from Adam and from the American Revolution. We're doubly trained and doubly prepared to rebel against authority. So, brothers and sisters, that means if we're going to be submissive to Christ, we need an extra measure of vigilance to fight against the rebellion in our hearts. So, one writer has said, much though not all, of the anti-government sentiment in the United States today is thinly veiled hatred of law and exaltation of brutal self-will. Thus it easily slips over into unrighteous, excuse me, thus it easily slips over into quote-unquote righteous wrongdoing. Let me just ask you a couple questions. As you think about your relationship to the government, what is it that you want so badly that you're willing to sin in order to get it? Or that you're willing to sin when you don't get what you want from the government? And when you identify that, you've identified an idol that you are worshiping who is not the exalted Christ. All of us need to wrestle through that. Are you in submission to your governing authorities? Are you in willing submission? Have you chosen to submit to them? And are you content with that? Are you at peace with that? I've said this, I don't know how many times, publicly and privately. Can I just just really encourage you? I can't base this out of the text, but I know we, we... What we do is the overflow of our minds and our hearts and what we're thinking, right? Jesus said that. And so can I just encourage you to feed your heart on the thing that will encourage submission and stop feeding yourself the things that will incite anarchy? So can I encourage you? Turn off. I don't, I don't care what news channel you watch. Or where your news feed comes from, turn it off. It's not helpful for your soul. I'll stop saying it to you. I'll say it to me. It's not helpful for my soul. We were watching in November. We, we probably don't watch the news once a year. 
And um, in November, we were watching the election results and somebody was going on and on about something. I just looked at Regine and said, even when I agree with them, it makes me mad. It's not good for my heart. Turn it off, brothers and sisters, and open up this. This will align your heart. It may not take away the problem of the culture, but it'll give you a basis for responding to the culture. This is why I wasn't going to get through everything today. Submit to the government. Here Paul tells us why we should submit to the government. Verse 2. Because lack of submission is rebellion against God. Remember in verse 1 he says God has established every authority, every government, every leader. Therefore, what's the conclusion from that, Paul? Therefore, verse 2, whoever, that corresponds to the word every person in verse 1. Whoever, anyone, every time someone resists authority, he has opposed the ordinance of God. Not to submit to government is to rebel against God. Paul could not be more clear. I was talking to somebody about this recently. And he asked me about what I was preaching. I said, I'm doing Romans 13. What are you going to say about government? I said, it's easy. Because the text is so clear. It's just hard to do, isn't it? If you resist authority, you're opposing God. It's to put yourself in opposition to God. It's to shake your fist at Him. Listen, discontentment with the government is discontentment with God. Just like... When you are angry, guys, with your wife, she's just the one that's receiving your wrath at the moment, but you're not really angry at her. You're angry at the God who gave her to you and angry that He has not made her do what you want her to do. Your anger isn't terminated on her. She's just the passing spot for the termination of your anger against God. And when we are angry at the culture and at our government, brothers and sisters, we're angry against government. We're angry against God. What we need to do is maintain a holy discontentment with unrighteousness. It is not wrong to be angry at unrighteousness, but it is wrong to hold on to that anger. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry, but do not sin. In other words, you have to let it go and entrust it to the one who is sovereign over it. And when you see a piece of legislation pass that is angering, you have to hate what is wrong and you have to stop cultivating an unrighteous anger towards it. And you must do what Paul says in the immediately preceding verses, chapter 12, 19, 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I'll take care of it. Don't presume that your wrath is as great as the wrath of God that is infinite and eternal. So whatever wrath you want to pour out against the government, just know that it pales to what God will do. Do you think your anger at a, at a Hitler compares to what he is experiencing now in hell and will for all of eternity? No, brothers, we don't, we don't need to be angry. The Lord will take care of it. The Lord will take care of it. R.C. Sproul rightly says, If we resist the authorities that God has appointed, we might be regarded as heroes by some, but we can expect only the visitation of God's judgment. In fact, that's the very point that Paul makes at the end of verse 2. Those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. That condemnation is going to come, verses 3 and 4, we've seen this, that's going to come through the arms of the government. But it doesn't come from the government. The condemnation comes from God. You oppose the government, you oppose God. And God will pour out retribution, condemnation on you. Or, if you're a follower of Christ, He has poured it out on Christ for your benefit. So Paul says, verse 5, It is necessary to be in subjection. Submission to government is a divine constraint. It is not optional. And the reason he gives us in verse 5 is for our conscience. Submission is for maintaining a clear conscience. I'd encourage you to go back, um, I don't remember, four years or so, maybe five so when we were in Romans 2, 14 and 15, and I did at least two messages, maybe three, on the conscience. I think those will help you if you go back and listen to them. And just think about what the conscience is and what its role is and how it functions. Let me just give you a quick synopsis. The conscience is not the work of the Holy Spirit in believers, but it is an innate divine moral code that is built into every individual. Everybody has it. In some it's more refined, in some it's less refined. Some it is exceedingly active and some eventually just kill it off as if it doesn't exist. But everybody has it. And that conscience is to guide and direct our activities. The conscience is a guide, Paul tells us in chapter 2 verse 15, to serve as a monitor and a witness and even far more a judge to our moral actions. Uh, our, our conscience approves what we do that is righteous and disproves what we do that is unrighteous. So it approves and accuses. In his tremendously helpful book on the conscience, Andy Nacelli says this, Your conscience guides you to help you conform to moral standards, monitors how you conform to them, testifies 
to how you conform to them and judges how you conform to them, thus making you feel guilt and pain. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's basically your moral awareness turned back on yourself. And Paul says, you need to submit to government so that your conscience doesn't accuse you and say you are a rebel against God. You want a conscience that is free and clear. And the only way you'll have that is if you submit to the government. You might say, well, I actually kind of proudly don't submit to the government. My conscience doesn't bother me. Friend, you're in a dangerous spot if that's true of you. It means you've been suppressing your conscience for such a long time that it is struggling to remain active in your life. Paul will say in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that it is possible to cauterize, to sear our consciences. In effect, kill them. And when you say, my conscience doesn't bother me in an act of sin, it designates just how far you have moved away from Christ. Now, I know nobody has an opinion about anything going on related to COVID. Certainly I don't. And this very idea of conscience has been an issue for some rebelling against some of the acts of the government over the last year. For instance, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes, so I'll pick an easy one, wearing masks. And some have said, I'm not going to wear a mask, it's an issue of conscience for me. And so I don't have to wear a mask because it's a conscious issue. Brothers and sisters, if wearing a mask was an issue of conscience, it is to say that to wear a mask is sin and rebellion against Christ and the gospel. And I don't think any of us wants to do that. None of us is having our conscience tell us, Um, When you wore that mask in Kroger the other day, that was sin. Repent. Our fleshly hearts are telling us, I don't want to wear a mask. I'll raise my hand on that one. I don't want to wear a mask. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. It fogs the glasses. I'm just tired of it. I don't want to wear a mask. Brothers and sisters, that's not conscience. That's preference. And with preference, what do we do? We submit to the one who is over us. Or, as an act of love, we we defer to the one who is alongside of us. Let me make an example that maybe is not quite so inflammatory. A few weeks ago, Regine and I went on vacation. And we're tooling along in north Texas, northwest Texas, Cruising along on the highway at the appropriate speed. Cruise set at 75, making great time to the destination. And we crossed the border. 55. 
the road was as straight as an arrow, as flat as a tabletop. Not a house anywhere to be seen. I exaggerate not. I looked and I could see for miles in both directions to my side and there's not a house in sight for 20 miles, 55 miles an hour. And my conscience said, this is ridiculous. Actually, that wasn't my conscience, was it? My preference said, who's the idiot lawmaker who did this to me? What did I do? I set the cruise at 55 and watched. Cars are passing me at 70, 75, 80 miles an hour, most of them with Texas plates. My preference was 75. That wasn't a conscience issue. I had no right to rebel. Going 55 was not making me sin. Brothers and sisters, we need to be really careful as we think about what we're saying and how we're functioning. And our default must be to submit. I can do no better in summarizing this than to echo what the best commentator on the book of Romans, Douglas Moo, has said. Government is more than a nuisance to be put up with. It is an institution established by God to accomplish some of His purposes on earth. And because that's true, we honor the government by submitting to the government. That's the base. Father, thank You for this Word. I thank you for it, not because I like it inherently, but I do like it because I need it. I need it so that I will learn transformation to do the kinds of things that you have called us to do and to be the kind of follower that exemplifies the character and the nature of Christ. And so, Father, as we prepare now to come to this table of communion, we just acknowledge before you our sin of rebellion. Some of us, perhaps, have never framed our attitudes towards the government in those kinds of terms. And we thank you that the text has confronted us this morning so that we can confess it so that we can admit that we are still in the flesh rebels. And this has just revealed one more place where we need transformation. And we acknowledge, Father, that our rebellion is ultimately against You. We have fought against You. We have resisted You. Truth be told, we have hated some of what You have said. And we ask that you would forgive us. We hear the sirens on the highway beside us. That's our government in action for us. That's our government protecting us. 
And we thank you for those men who are part of this government that you have given to us for our good, who protect us and keep us in physical circumstances. And might we find it easier to submit to them and to all the governing authorities who are over us. Father, would you wash us of these sins of rebellion and would you cleanse us from every sin and renew our fellowship with you even right now so that as we come to your glorious table of redemption that we might do so worthily honoring to Christ. We pray these things, our Father, in his gracious and glorious name. Amen.